Well, last week we opened our study in the book of James by establishing a bit of a historical context. And we spent a little bit of time talking about who the author of the book of James was and some of those things. And in doing that, we learned that this letter, this epistle of James, James presents to his readers a series of tests by which they are able to examine their faith to determine whether or not it is genuine. This is such an important thing for us to be doing. All through the New Testament, we're commanded to examine ourselves test ourselves to be sure that our faith is real. And so as we come to the book of James, James gives us a series of tests to help us understand whether or not our faith is genuine. You'll remember that if you were here that James was writing to Jews who had been converted to Christianity and as subsequent to their conversion had been scattered all across the Mediterranean world as a result of persecution that then followed their conversion as the religious leaders of the Jewish tradition were pursuing them. They were pursued, they were chased, they were harassed, they, some were tortured, they were arrested, they were thrown in jail. And these people needed assurance that their faith was real. They needed assurance that they weren't putting up with this for no reason, but that they were genuine believers. And so what happens then in the book of James is that he gives them a series of 13 tests in this short little five-chapter letter that we can use to determine the genuineness of our faith. And so today, as we make our way into our passage for this morning, we're going to examine the very first of those 13. And we'll probably continue with that a little bit next week week. But as most of you are aware, before we even get into our message, if I could take a little bit of a diversion here. As most of you are aware, the geography of Israel is such that vineyards and wheat fields, they were very, very common in the first century. In fact, those were pretty much the only things that you could get to grow well in that part of the world. But because vineyards were so common, wine was obviously everywhere. It was very common. It was absolutely everywhere. It was just a social, it was a staple. It was something that everybody used every day. And so I'd like to just take a minute, if I could, to help you understand how wine was made. And I hope that you will find this interesting as I did. So when grapes were harvested, and that usually happened around the August to September time frame, they would take these grapes and they would spread them out in the sun for up to 14 days. And as these grapes were in the sun, they would begin to swell up and they would begin to become really juicy and they would begin to increase their sugar content and they became sweeter and sweeter as they sat in the sun. Now, the process of making wine required at least two vessels, okay? It required two vessels. One was a larger vessel, and it was a little bit higher than the other vessel. It was placed a little bit higher, maybe on a little bit of a platform or something like that. So it was just elevated a little bit. Now, this upper vessel, the one that was elevated, was the one that was known as the wine press. And that's the place where they took these grapes after they had been in the sun and after they had been filled with sweetness and sugar, and they would take these grapes and they would put them into this wine press then, into this upper vessel. Then... What would happen is people would get into this wine press and they'd start walking around on the grapes and they're squishing the grapes between their toes. You know, you've got the grape skins everywhere and, and they're just splashing around in this wine press and it kind of makes you think that, glad you don't drink a lot of wine, right? Great, I, that's been between somebody's toes? That's nasty. <laughs> 
So they would get on these grapes in the wine press and they would walk on them with their bare feet. And the idea was that they needed to break the skin of the grape. They needed to squash the grape to get the juice out and to get the juice flowing. And so what would happen then is as these people, as you can imagine, are trampling on the grapes, their clothing would be just absolutely spattered with the red juice of the grape. It would be absolutely everywhere. And so you'll see references to this all through the Bible. You'll see it all through extra biblical ancient writings. And in the great picture of the Lord's vengeance, you'll see it here in Isaiah chapter 63. This is what the prophet says. He says that he, being the Lord, has tread out the wine press. Have you ever heard of that before? He has tread out the wine press. That's what he's talking about. This is where that comes from. It's a picture of the judgment of God in this case. And you can, you have the image of God's clothing covered in this red blood is the idea with judgment, but he's covered in blood and he's been trampling the grapes out. But as the people would get into the wine press and trample the grapes out, the juice then would begin to flow from the wine press into this little channel or this conduit into the lower vessel that was just a little bit lower than the wine press, which was known as the wine vat. So it would go from the wine press into the wine vat. Now, the wine vat would function kind of as a collecting and as a fermenting container for the grape juice. So the grape juice would flow in there, and of course you'd have chunks of grapes and you'd have chunks of skin that would make their way into the wine vat and flowing through the conduit and they'd get into the wine vat. And then what would happen is they would leave the juice in that wine vat. So it would stay there for quite some time. As you can imagine, in the warm climate of Palestine, the fermentation began almost right away. It began to ferment right away, and the grapes were then, you know, they were already pressed and broken, so they're just sitting there in this wine vat. Now, the first stage of fermentation took place there in that wine vat. But what happened then is that after the wine had fermented for a time, It was separated from the wasted skins. It was separated from all the off-scourings that were known as the lees or the dregs. Maybe you've heard those words before. The dregs or the lees, they are the skins and the grape remnants that made their way into the wine vat. They're the sediment. They're all the crud that settles to the bottom of the container. And in biblical times... Wine was often left on the lees. It was left on the dregs for a period of time because what would happen is as you left it there, it would increase its strength and it would increase its flavor. But before you could drink it, it had to be strained to get rid of all of the dregs because it was in the dregs that all the bitterness existed. So you had to strain the wine. You had to get out all of the lees, all the off-scourings, all of the dregs so that you could remove the bitterness. So what they would do then was they would strain the wine by pouring it from its container into another container, but in the middle there would be a piece of cloth that worked as a filter. So they would pour it through this cloth, and as the juice flowed through the cloth into the second container, all of the dregs, all of the lees, all the off-scourings would be captured, and then you would have a more pure juice on the other end. You would have a more pure wine in the second container. Now, as the wine would age, to prevent it from developing these undesirable thickenings, because what would happen is some of the dregs would clearly pass through the filter and they would end up in the bottle. So even though you've got a more pure grape juice, even though you've got a more pure wine, there are still some dregs in there. And so what they would do is they would let it sit for a time. And the dregs would begin to settle down to the bottom of the second container. And so from time to time, to avoid having the wine become bitter, to avoid having the taste of the dregs make the wine taste sour, they would take the juice and they would pour it from time to time from one container into the next container. Let it sit for a little while. 
They'd pick it up, and they'd filter it out again, put up another cloth, and they'd pour through it again. And they would always allow time for those dregs to settle down to the bottom of the container. Now, so as it would sit there and the dregs would settle to the bottom, they would continue to clean it out. They would continue to filter the juice by dumping it from one container to another, from one container to another. And each time, more of the dregs would be filtered out. You see? Each time that they would do that, more of the bitterness would be taken out of this wine, and the wine would become sweeter and sweeter. It would become more and more pure. So when you talk about the dregs of society, do you know what you're talking about? talking about the off-scouring, right? You're talking about the undesirable things. You're talking about the bitter stuff. That's where that came from. And you take those things and you just throw them away. You know what they use the dregs for? Use those to make vinegar because they were so sour and so bitter. That was all they were good for. But there's another saying that was born from that filtering process, and it's the saying of being settled on your lees. Have you ever heard about being settled on your lees before? That's what this means. It means that you haven't taken the effort. You haven't taken the time to separate the strong and bitter things from the things that are sweet in your life. That's what it means to be settled on your lees. It's to say that you're complacent. If somebody is settled on their lees, they're just comfortable. They like where they are. They're complacent. They don't need to mix things up. They don't need to filter things out. And so if you're a student of the Old Testament, maybe you remember what the prophet Jeremiah said about Moab. And you'll see this in Jeremiah 48.11. This is what it says. Moab has been at ease from his youth. You see, he's been at ease from his youth and has settled on his dregs. He has settled on his lees. He has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile. Do you see the image here? He's saying Moab has been settled on his lees. He has not been filtered. He has not been cleansed. He has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile. So his taste remains in him. That's the bitterness. That's the sour flavor, the nasty flavor of those dregs. And his scent is not changed. He smells bad. He smells strong. He smells bitter. Jeremiah was saying that as far as Moab was concerned, everything was really good. Life was really good for Moab, for the nation of Moab. And just like spoiled children, Moab had whatever money could provide. Moab had everything that they needed. They had education. They had every good pleasure. They had every good thing that they could want. They had it made. And so they just settled on their lees. They just settled on their dregs. And they sat there and they enjoyed everything that they had. They had no need of anything. They were comfortable. They had become complacent, do you see? But... In order for wine to be made sweet, it had to go through the straining process. It had to filter out all of the crud and all of the impurities, and it had to filter out all of the bitterness so that it could be made sweet. So I'd like to take you to our passage for today, if I could. And I want to introduce you to the very first test of genuine faith as James presents it to us in his epistle. And so I'd like us to just start by reading verse 2 for right now, if we could. And this is what it says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So as we were in the book of Ephesians, I'm sure that you'll remember, we noted that any believer who boldly lives a godly life in this present age, any believer who acts like a believer in the present world can expect that he's going to encounter some problems, can't he? 
If you live like a believer, you can be sure that you're going to have problems because genuine believers, the Bible tells us, are targeted by the spiritual forces of evil. It's just a truism. That's the way it is. But not only is that true, this is also true, and that's that this world is just filled with all kinds of problems, whether you're a believer or not. This world is filled with problems without regard for your faith, the maturity of your faith, or the genuineness of your faith. By virtue of the fact that this world is fallen, by virtue of the fact that this world is sinful, it produces trouble, it produces sorrow, it produces unhappiness for all of the people that live in it. And even as believers, you get that from time to time. And so as a result, as we walk through this life, friends, I want you to know that you can be sure that you're going to experience conflict. You can be sure that there is going to be hardship in your lives. You can be sure that you're going to go through difficulty. You can be sure that you are going to face illness. You can be sure that you are going to face sorrow. You can be sure that you're going to experience loss. And that's what James is talking about when he says in verse 2 that when you meet trials of various kinds. Did you notice that? Did you notice he says when you meet trials of various kinds and not if you meet trials of various kinds? Do you understand why he does that? Because it is a sure thing. Life is filled with trials. Life is filled with tests. There is no if it's going to happen. There is only when it's going to happen because it is going to happen. And these trials that you're going to face, they take all forms. There are all kinds, there are various kinds, the Bible says, of troubles. They will be diverse. They'll take all kinds of forms. They come in all shapes. They come in all sizes. They last for different periods of time. And they will come in every single area, every single aspect of your life. I want you to know that. They're like the view through a kaleidoscope. You hold it up and you look through this thing and you see all of these different colors. You see all of these different shapes. And that's how trouble is in your life. All different sizes and shapes. I want you to know that that doesn't mean that you're going to be faced with every single trial that ever exists. I'm not saying that. There are some things that you may not face. But it is to say that you are going to face all kinds of different problems. You're going to face many different things. And I want you to know that all of these things are trials that test you. They are trials that challenge the genuineness of your faith. Listen. Maybe there are people here right now who are facing the trial. Maybe there are people who are here right now facing the struggle of financial problems. There might be people that are facing that test right now. Maybe you're here and you just feel like you're always just a few dollars short. Maybe you're just one auto repair away from having just enough financial freedom to feel like you can finally get somewhere and then your car breaks down and now you're out of money. And so what happens is you feel frustrated and maybe you come to the place where you begin to question why you've even committed your life. I mean, what's the point of this? Maybe you've gone through the terrible struggle of watching someone close to you become sick. Maybe you've gone through the terrible trial of watching a loved one pass away. Maybe you have a child with an illness that is very serious. Maybe you yourselves have received a sad diagnosis and it just fills your heart with sorrow. It's overwhelming. It just fills you with sorrow. You are filled with sadness. And this trial, this test, this problem commands all of your emotional and all of your spiritual energy. Have, ever, have any of you ever experienced a trial like that? 
It just drains you of everything. It completely consumes you. This is a test. Maybe your heart was broken by someone you loved. Or maybe you loved somebody and they didn't love you in return. And because of that, you feel rejected. You feel unwanted. And I want you to know that it's a test. Maybe you feel like you have never really accomplished anything in your life. I've never really done anything of note. I've never really done anything of real significance. I have just worked a simple job, checking in and checking out, day after day after day for 50 years, and I never really got paid all that much. I never really felt like I contributed a great deal to make the world a much better place. I want you to know that even that is a trial. It's a trial. Maybe you have a child who's going through a very difficult time in a relationship in his own life. Maybe you have a child who is straying from the Lord and your heart is just filled with sorrow. You're overcome with sadness and it consumes your every waking moment. It's all you can think about. You can't sleep at night. You're upset. It has broken your heart. You're broken and you're shattered. It's a test. Friends, they come in all forms. They come in all shapes. They come in all colors. I just want to pause for one second here if I could. Because I believe there are many of you who are going through difficult things right now. And I want you to pause just for one moment. And I want to allow you to think about some of the trials and some of the tests that you're facing right now. Take a moment and identify the most painful one that you're going through right now. Put your finger on it. In your own mind, identify it and call it out by name. And the reason that I ask you to do that is not to be cruel or to prove to you that you have problems. It's not to prove to you that you have trials or that you have tests that you're facing. But the reason that I ask you to do that is because James gives us the tools to deal with those trials. He gives us the tools to deal with those trials. Friends, I need to tell you that we don't need somebody to tell us that we face trials. We all know that. I don't need people to tell me that I've got problems. I know I've got problems. What I need is somebody to help me get through them. James is very, very practical. And he's very practical in that way. And so this morning, as you remember that trial, as you remember the test, whatever the heartbreak is, don't run from it. Think about it for now. Whatever it is, I want you to hang on to that because I'm going to pass along to you this morning some practical steps that are going to help you get through your trial, whatever it is. I'm going to begin to pass along some practical steps that will help you get through that. So I want you to think of that trial. I want you to think of that, that test that is the most pressing and the most painful thing for you and your family right now. And I want us to begin to work through the process together. Can we do that? We're going to do that right here in the first few verses of the book of James. So let's go then to the book of James. And I want you to see that if we look at the first two verses again, James says that we need to count it all joy when we face trials. So that's your very first step. If you want to take notes, the very first step is that when you face a trial, you count your trials as all joy. The first step to help you navigate whatever trial you are facing is to count it all joy or to go into your trial with joy in your heart. Scott, what am I, some kind of weirdo that I'm going into trial, I'm going into suffering, and I'm going into pain, and you expect me to have a heart filled with joy about that? How can I do that? 
Friends, listen, there comes a point in every single struggle when people stop and they consider the trial. They stop and they weigh it out and they look at it and they evaluate the struggle. They evaluate the trial. And most often, probably they'll say, what did I do to deserve this? Probably the very first thought that comes to their mind is, what did I do wrong? How did I get into this place? What did I do to deserve this? You're evaluating your trials. You're counting them, do you see? You're counting them. You're weighing them out. You're trying to understand them. You're evaluating them. And I want you to know that at some point, as you evaluate your trial, you're going to reach a fork in the road. When you get to that fork in the road, you can do one of several things. You can either go down the path of self-pity, and you can go down the path and continue down the path that says, what did I do to deserve this? Or maybe you could go down a path of bitterness. Maybe you could go down a path of selfishness or anger. Or you can go down a path of joy. Isn't that weird? How do I go down a path of joy in such difficult things? I mean, it seems so strange to me. It seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? I mean, can you imagine somebody saying to you, oh, I am just so blessed to know that I've been diagnosed with this wonderful disease. I'm just so blessed to feel so crummy. Would that seem genuine to you? Absolutely not. But listen to me, friends. It's important that you know that you are able to enter into, you are able to receive your trials with all joy. That's what James says. With all complete, comprehensive joy. You see, when you reach the place of reflection on your trials, you are able to consider them all joy. And I want to show you how that happens. Can I do that? This is how you do that. When Jesus came to earth to save humanity, he left behind the beauty and the grandeur of heaven. Can you imagine what he left behind to come here? Here is the God of the entire universe. Here is Jesus Christ who is worshipped and adored by angels. He leaves that place. He leaves the perfection of heaven so that he can come to earth and be born in a dirty stable so that he can live a life of obscurity, so that he may live a life of poverty, and ultimately be murdered by the very people he came to save. How is that for a trial? Clearly, this is a significant trial. Now, I want you to take a look at what the author of Hebrews says about Christ as a model in times of struggle. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, or author and perfecter of our faith. Now, listen, this is it. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the Father at the throne of God. Now, listen. Jesus Christ, your model, was able to see through the struggle. Do you see it? He was able to see through the trial. He was able to see through the problems that he was going to face, to see the joy on the other side. He was able to see through the excruciating pain of the whipping. He was able to see through the painful separation from God. He was able to see through the burden of carrying the weight of the entirety of humanity's sin. Can you imagine? He was able to see through that. He was able to see through the shame. He was able to see through the death by crucifixion, excruciating death by looking at the joy on the other side. 
That's what he was doing. He was looking at the joy that was on the other side of all of those tests. That's what he was doing as he was there. He was not focusing his attention. Friends, listen very, very closely to me. He was not focusing his consideration on the agony of his present circumstances. Do you see? He was not focusing his attention on the agony of the things he was about to experience, but he considered the joy on the other side of once again being home in the perfect place of heaven, seated at the right hand of his father. That's what he was looking at. And so he could see through the agony. He could see through all of the struggle as unimaginable as it really was. He could see through it to the other side so that he could enjoy the joy and the celebration of heaven. Do you see that? I want to leave that there for a moment. I want to come back to that now. So the first step is to have joy. The second step is going to be found in the second part of verse 2 and in verse 3. So let's take a look again. Verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now verse 3, this is where it is. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Count it all joy. First, you enter your trial and your struggle, considering it joy to be in your trial. Second, he says, you go into your trial with knowledge. You go into your trial with knowledge. Now, this is a participle, so rather than translating it as, for you know, it should say like this, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Do you see it? So you're going into it with a knowledge that you have already formed and resolved in your mind. So you are going into it with something that you know. And what is it that you know? Well, you are knowing that there is benefit from the trial. That's the point. You're going into it knowing that there is benefit from the testing that you're facing. And what is the benefit? Well, the Greek word for it here is hupomone, and it means to remain under. Remain under, it is endurance. As a very simple example, I can remember years ago, I decided I wanted to learn how to play the guitar. And so as I was learning to play the guitar, when I first started playing, my fingertips, they were like super tender. (laughs) And that was not cool. I mean, I would play and I would play and play, and my fingertips would become really sore from pressing those strings down, you know? Have any guitar players, you know what I'm talking about? And so I would play for hours and hours, and I'd get so frustrated because my fingers hurt so much that I couldn't, I couldn't keep pressing down the strings. Now listen, I don't want to trivialize your trial, but I want you to think of it in these terms. Think about this. It was painful for me to do that, but... As I remained under the pain, as I remained under the discomfort, I began to develop a little bit of endurance. So I played, and I played, and it hurt, and I would get upset. But finally, after some months of playing for hours a day, the tips of my fingers became a little bit calloused. And I found that I could play for longer periods of time. I could endure it for longer periods of time each time I would play. And the more I pushed myself, the more I found that I had endurance. And ultimately, I got to the place where my fingers were so firm, I could play as long as I wanted and it didn't hurt at all. I was going to tell you that I did that with jogging and running or something a little bit more meaningful, but I didn't think any of you guys would fall for that. But you can't see my fingers, so I, I could be making that up too, but you, and you wouldn't know what I'm saying either. But listen, ultimately, because I stayed in the struggle, because I didn't run away from it, because I didn't just put the guitar down and say, I'm never coming back to it, my fingers became strong, they became callous, they became firm, and I had endurance. You go into your trials, 
You go into your difficult circumstances, friends, listen, knowing that as you remain under the pressure, as you bear up under the pressure, your strength is being built. You're being made strong and your ability to endure is expanded. I also, once again, when I was working out, you know, hitting the free weights, I noticed that too. I was just, I thought I'd get a grin from Elias out of that one. So I want to take you now to verse 4. And I'm going to show you a third step to get through your test, okay? Take a look at verse 4. And this is what it says. And let steadfastness, think of that as endurance, that's what we were talking about, and let endurance have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Let endurance have its full effect. So friends, listen to me. The third principle is that you let, that you allow, that you submit to the Lord's will in your trial. Do you see? You allow the endurance. You allow the pain to strengthen you. You allow it to work on you. You don't run away from it. Do you see the point? You stay there and you submit to it. I consider once again the model of Christ. Remember that Jesus had made his way to the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was murdered. And as he was there, as he awaited his arrest, Luke 22 tells us that he knelt down and he prayed saying, Look, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Now look, Jesus did not want to go through the terrible ordeal that was going to happen to him over the next 24 hours. He did not want to go through all of the pain that he was about to experience. And if there was any other way that God's plan of redemption could have been accomplished, Jesus would have preferred to have gone that route instead. You see? He didn't want to go that way. And the Bible teaches that he literally could have called on as many angels as he wanted to rescue him. But rather than avoid the conflict, rather than run from the test, Jesus submitted himself to the Father's will and he endured and he built up his strength. I read Hebrews 12 to you a few minutes ago. And it says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Friends, listen to me. The path that Jesus needed to take from trial to joy was through the cross. Did you catch that? The path that Jesus needed to take, the path that he had to get from trial to joy was to submit his will to the purpose of the Father and endure the trial as difficult as it was. Can you imagine? Yet he endured it because he knew that the joy was on the other side. He endured the the difficulty. Friends, hear me. The path to his joy is the same as the path to your joy. It's to remain under the trial. It's to remain in submission. It's to endure it until you have made your way all the way through. Do you see? But Scott, I don't want to go through this trial. Neither did Jesus. And that's a perfectly natural reaction. Of course you don't want to go through it. Submit to it. Allow it to have its work on you. Allow it to strengthen you and to build you up. Remain under it and look through it to the joy on the other side. You see, God, and it's so important, friends, that we understand this. Believers face trials. Believers face struggles and God allows you to go through them. 
He allows you to go through them. He does not keep you from them because you're a believer. Rather, he allows you to go through them and he promises you that he will be there with you as you go through it and that he will not allow it to be more than you can handle. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide a way of escape. Oh, wait, I can get out? Yes, what is it? That you may be able to endure it. Do you see it here? The way out is to go through it. I'm not going to lift you out of it. I want you to go through it because it's going to have its perfecting work on your heart. It's going to have its perfecting work in your spirit. Friends, you can be sure that no matter the complexity, you can be sure that no matter the weight of the trial that you are facing right now, the one that you've called out by name and that you're holding on to, God has promised that that trial that you called out by name will not be too much for you to endure. You can endure it. It's a promise from God. Oh, but Scott, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know how terrible this is. No, I don't. But friends, I know the word of God says that you can endure it. And I know that God is faithful. I know that he's not lying about that. When you have submitted yourself to God's will and the trial, when you've endured it, when you've made your way through it, I want you to know that the joy that you will find on the other side of the trial is so sweet. The joy that you'll find on the other side is absolutely wonderful. And let me show you what that joy is. Can I do that? Let's take a look at verse 4. And it says, And let steadfastness, or endurance, have its full effect, in order that, is what we're going to see here, in order that, so this is the purpose of your endurance, this is why you're going through it, in order that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's the joy. It's on the other side. James is saying that when you are enduring in your trial and when you're enduring in your struggle and you have made your way through, the result is that you are made to be fully developed. That's what that word means. I am fully developed now. I am mature. I'm grown up. I'm no longer a baby. Do you see that? I'm going through this. I'm complete in every spiritual area. I am very well-rounded. Listen, friends, you are lacking nothing. There is no area of your life where you are not rich. That's what the word is. says lacking in nothing means that there is no area of your life where you are destitute. There's no area of your life where you don't have the resources that you need. That's what struggles and trials do to you. That's what they do to you. And that's why they take so many different forms because each of them has its own maturing work on you. Do you see? Each of them has its own work of bringing you to completeness. And that only happens when you stay under it and when you endure it. And finally, when you've done that, every area has been tested. Every area has been tried so that in every spiritual thing, in every spiritual discipline, in every spiritual area, you have been fully developed and you are now mature and you are grown up. You're an adult, spiritually speaking. You're not a baby anymore. You're not a toddler. You have made your way through it and your spirit has been strengthened and the mass of your muscles has begun to develop and your understanding has developed. In every area of your spiritual life, you have been made mature and you have been made complete. Do you see that? Moab was a pagan nation that was to the southeast of Israel And Moab had never been through struggle. It had never been conquered. It had never been subdued. 
The nation had been undisturbed, it had been untested, and the nation just sat idly by enjoying their luxury and their good fortune. They were resting on their lees. They were just sitting on top of the dregs, getting fat and enjoying everything. They were undisturbed. And as a result of just sitting there, its flavor to God was bitter. Do you see? Its smell was sour. Its smell was strong. Israel, on the other hand, had been embattled. Israel had been conquered. Israel had been enslaved. Israel had been sent into exile. Israel had known hardship. Israel had known struggle. I'd like us to pause for a minute. I want you to think about that struggle that we talked about. Think about the struggle that you're facing, the one that embattles you right now. And I want you to pause and evaluate it. Consider it for a moment. And I want you to know that I have them too. I'm going through difficult things just like the rest of you. I have trials. I have difficult things that test me and they stretch me and they pull on me and I feel weak and sometimes I feel like I just can't take anymore. I've had enough. I'm disturbed. I'm agitated. And sometimes I just feel like I want to just give up. I've had It's too much. I've had enough. Have you ever felt like you're just being poured out? I've got nothing left to give. I'm being completely poured out. And as I thought about that, I thought about a bottle of wine. <laughs> That's not what I'm, uh, yeah, that, uh... listen friends, are you like me? Here I am in my life wanting rest. I want to just take it easy, you know, I just, can everything just leave me alone, right? Can I just be comfortable? Can I just have a few months where I'm just, you know, but sometimes I am just like Moab, right? Sometimes I'm just like Moab. I just want to sit here on my lees. I just want to sit on top of my dregs, and I want to enjoy luxury and blessing, and I want things to be easy for me, but that's not what makes my life sweet and flavorful to God. That's not what makes us complete and well-rounded. You see, God takes our lives, and as you're going through a struggle, this is what's happening to you. You're going through the struggle that feels so painful, and you feel like you're being poured out, and that's because God is taking you and he is pouring you from the bottle through the filtering cloth into another bottle, do you see? And he's straining out all of the dregs. And friends, that's what your trials are. And every time you're strained, every time you're tested, more of the impurity is filtered out. And you become sweeter and sweeter. And then maybe you have some time to set on your dregs for a little bit. And it all begins to settle down. And the next thing you know, what happens? You're being poured out again. And you feel like I can't take any more. And you're being filtered. And you're being poured out just when things were going pretty well. You're tested and you're purified. And you become sweeter. And you become sweeter. Filtered. Strained. Purified. And tested. Now I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what your struggle is right now. I don't know that. I know some of you are dealing with some really difficult things in your lives. I know some of you are dealing with some things that are really, really hard. But can I encourage you, when you pause, when you get to the place where you consider those circumstances, to allow those trials and those struggles to do their work in your life, May I encourage you that as you consider the test that you not allow your focus to be on the pain 
that you not allow your focus to be on the disappointment. Because if you do that, you are sure to be robbed of your joy. Don't focus on the struggle. Don't struggle. Don't, don't focus on the pain. Rather, force your gaze to the other side of the struggle. Do you see? Force your gaze to the other side. Go into the struggle with joy in your heart because you know that it is going to forge strength. It's going to make you strong. It's going to build up your endurance in your spirit. Go into it knowing that it is building you and making you stronger and force your spirit to be submissive to the will of God in your struggle and allow the struggle to strain you and filter you and make you less and less bitter and ultimately you're going to look back and you're going to see that you become strong. You're going to see that you have, been, you have become mature. You look back and you'll know that your faith is real because it has been proven. It was tested. And when you came through the filter on the other side, you still love God even more than you ever have and you're even more committed to Him. Have you ever met an old believer? I think of some of those in my life, that I look at them and you can just tell by talking to them, their spirit is sweet and they're mature and they've been filtered and they've gone through trial and you can tell that they're strengthened and it seems like nothing really rattles them anymore. Have you ever known anyone like that? That's what I want the body of Root River Church to look like. Father, I thank You that we can count on You even in our struggles. We know that even in our problems, that You're not going to allow us to take more than we can. So Lord, I pray that You would help us to stop and to evaluate and to look to the joy on the other side of our struggles. I pray, God, that You would help us to be submissive to Your will, that You would help us to be submissive to You during our struggle, that we would allow ourselves to be strengthened, I pray. I pray, God, that You would help us to be people who are willing to submit to Your will completely no matter the difficulty of the struggle, for the joy that's set before us on the other side. We thank you for these things now, in Jesus' name. Amen.